struck again this morning as just the setting up was happening of the, the way in which, and we've spoken about this lots of times, the way in which we are not a, a restaurant but a family meal and just loads of people getting involved, serving before particularly, so setting up chairs and PA and music and service leading and dealing with PowerPoint and kids slots and at the back even now as well looking after our children. So um, I want to say thank you for the reality of being a church body and a church family. It's a real humbling pleasure to be um, able to serve among you. Um, let me give thanks to God, and then let me um, pray as well for us as we look at these um, verses together in 1 Chronicles 14. Well, we do indeed thank you that you don't call us to live the Christian life alone, but you call us into a community, into a family, that we are children together of our Heavenly Father that you give us gifts and skills and abilities and experiences and personalities that we might serve one another and serve you, that we might sharpen one another, that we might challenge one another, point each other to you. Thank you that you give us each other. And thank you that you give us your word as well. Lord, as we've just sung, where else would we go apart from you? You have the words of eternal life. And so we long that you would indeed show us Christ as we look at this chapter together and the chapters around it. Might you grow your kingdom, might you reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So do you remember the situation in Chronicles? Um, the people of God are in the land that God has promised them. And the chronicler is writing an account for the people um, from, from a late time, looking back, in such a way as to teach them what faithfulness looks like. As Ellie was teaching the kids, there are all kinds of questions, perhaps, that the people were asking. And so the chronicler is wanting to help God's people understand what it means to be faithful to him, how they, they won't be exiled again, how they will be protected and stay in the land. And one of the big questions that we will see from today, from our chapter today, is the answer to the question, in the chronicler's mind at least, what the difference is between King Saul and King David. Do you remember the importance of kings in the Bible? The kings of the kingdom are to be the people who lead God's people uh, as one who knows God's in such a way that reflects God, that reveals what their God is like. Um, not to lead as the surrounding nations do, not to lord it over like the Gentiles do, but rather, Deuteronomy 17, one who reads and who knows and who has absorbed the scriptures, um, who loves God, who leads with humility and service and kindness. A king, ultimately, who will lead his people towards God rather than away from God. And as we'll see as we go through this series in Chronicles, that's not a given at all. And that matters because, as we'll see in this little section around chapter 14, David makes a mistake. And we'll see David is, in one sense, very Saul-like in the mistake that he makes. And yet there's a difference because despite David's error... Despite the mistake that we'll see him making, despite him getting it wrong, God still blesses David. And I think we're meant to ask the question, why? Why does Saul get booted, if you remember the history of Saul? 
this initial king, but rejected by God? Why does Saul get booted, but David gets away with it, so to speak? And I think as we analyze it, we'll see it helps us because we can be believers rather like David who make mistakes and who get it wrong and who slip up and who muck up. And there's a sense in which David at this point represents us. He is a model for people like us. And when we get it wrong and when we slip up and when we muck up, maybe that thing looming over you from this last week And we look at David and we understand why the Lord blesses him. And we understand what it means for us to be a people who are in Christ. David's David's successor, Jesus, one from the line, from his line, who would be the perfect king. Um, Just a brief reminder then before we jump in again. Um, again, do catch up on the website if you weren't around last week. Um, it would really help in terms of helping to understand the structure and what's going on in Chronicles, and perhaps understanding why Chronicles is the least preached book of the Bible um, and why we're doing it here at Magdalen Road. Do you remember, it is a late history of the people of God, though. They've been forcibly removed from the land that God promised them. Um, God had promised them this place, And yet they'd been removed from it. They're back in the land again because of King Cyrus. They've been disciplined. And they're kind of saying, well, how do we stop it happening again? God, are your promises still promises? Can we still trust you? How do we live faithfully for you now? And so what the chronicler does, we said, if you were around, is he he selectively recounts God's dealing with his people. And we said it was like a grade... A, exam answer. I know some of you are starting GCSEs tomorrow, so apologies for this. But his his exam answer is deliberate and targeted and specific. And he's not just chucking down everything he can think of to try and scrape a few marks. We've all been there, haven't we? No, he is being precise. And he is focusing in on the question at hand. He is leaving out the good stuff that's not important And just focusing in on this idea of what it means to be faithful to God and whether his promises still stand. And so we've said he is is retelling history in a way that brings hope. Which means there's a particular focus on how God relates to his people and how his people relate to him. So there'll be a big focus on kings, particularly King David, we'll see. But a big focus in later weeks we'll see as well on the temple and worship at the temple. King David does get... I think the most airtime through the book of of any human, 18 chapters. He is God's faithful king par excellence. And he is the one very much in mind for this morning. Let's jump in. Uh, And we're going to jump in actually at the end of chapter 10. And I want to try and give you a bit of a potted history of the stuff we're missing out. Very briefly, you'll be very welcome to go and read it in your own time. But I just want to zoom in at the end of chapter 10, because I think it's relevant, and you see the way in which Saul is described from chapter 10, verse 13 to 14 at the end there. This is the kind of the conclusion of the matter. Verse 13, page 413, if you have a Burgundy Bible. Um, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Do you remember if this is a a late history 
of the people of God, looking back on their time in the land. Listen, people of God, says the chronicler, your faithfulness to God matters. The voices you listen to matter. Because do you see how it went wrong for Saul? He, he stopped listening to God. He started listening to the wrong voices. He started doing things his own way. And so the chronicler says, look, it will not go well with you. Listen to God. It's like a tree that soars, like a tree that deliberately uproots itself from the ground and seeks to thrive and to flourish and to grow without any roots in the right place. So he's removed himself from the word of God. And so he's gone. But then in chapter 11, we see how David was appointed and anointed. Next page, 414. The, the contrast is telling at the start of chapter 11. All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, even while Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord your God said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, as the Lord had promised through Samuel. Actually, we saw some of this last year, if you remember, when we were looking at 1 Samuel. The nation here in chapter 11 is, is united together again. Where there had been fragmentation, they are together, and David is approached. Why him? Well, chapter 11, he's the de facto ruler anyway. He is the one who has been leading their military campaigns anyway. And the king at that point was, was not to be the one miles behind the front line but actually the one on the, on the front line, hands dirty, ahead of the people, leading the proverbial charge. And that had been David, that hadn't been Saul. I know it ages me, but Saul, in Blackadder terms, was General Melchett, miles behind the front line, in safety and comfort, not a leader, not one whom the people wanted to follow. But more than that, he wasn't just simply the choice of the people, Actually, he was the choice of God as well. You get it in verse 2 and in verse 3. The Lord God said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. Or verse 3, as the Lord had promised through Samuel. And if you scan it through in chapter 11, actually, everything at this point begins to build and get going. There is building that happens. Um, David, first of all, sorts the place to live as he conquers Jerusalem. In verse 4 onwards, he, he deals with the Jebusites. Remember the Jebusites? They should not be in the land. Back in Genesis, God had promised to Abraham this land, and he would drive the Canaanites out, but everyone had gone apart from the Jebusites. And they were still there, like parasites, lingering. So you can track it back. And you can see in, in Joshua 15, they were unable to remove the Jebusites, or in Judges 1, they were unwilling to remove the Jebusites. And so here David comes in and finishes the job and finally claims the land, removing the last of the Canaanites, delivering on God's promises, dealing with God's enemies. And so, verse 7, he takes up residence in the fortress, and so it was called the city of David. And then from there, he builds and builds and builds. So he builds the city around him, verse 8. 
You see, 11 verse 8, he built up the city around it from the terraces to the surrounding wall, and Joab restored the rest of the city. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. He builds a city, then he builds the nation through the next few chapters, really. You see, this land is huge, and anybody who's in leadership of something large knows you can't do it by yourself. You can't trust just simply in yourself. You need a people who will support you. And so verse 10, these were the chiefs of David's mighty warriors. They, together with all Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land. As the Lord had promised, this is the list of David's mighty warriors. Lots more names for us. And to the end of the chapter, and you've got various other individuals whom the Lord uses, and the land is consolidated. It's not just based in Jerusalem, this is the whole place. Then in chapter 12, you get more warriors from Gad and Benjamin and Manasseh. And then the end of the chapter 12, loads more families are represented. But the point is, David's army is growing. David's power is increasing. Geography matters to David. And so he is placing people around the land as the nation is built and unified. And then from there in chapter 13, this is where we shall see he makes a slight mistake. There's more building, and it seems to be good building. He's building the worship life of the people. He wants to get the Ark of the Covenant into its rightful place in the land again, making sure God is at the center of things. You see, David conferred with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. 13 verse 1, he said to the whole whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel and also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their towns and pastor lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us. We did not inquire of it during the reign of of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. Hang on, because it seemed right to all the people. It was a good thing to do, and we'll see in a bit it was to be commended, because it shows us something of David's heart and his, his good priorities. But it's interesting, I think it's telling that they had head out on their plan, and as far as we can tell, the Lord was not spoken to. They didn't seem to inquire of him whether to do it or how to do it. Actually, it turns out the reason it went wrong is they did not use the right people or do it in the right manner. And so they pressed pause on that venture for the time being, if you look at the rest of chapter 13. If you fast forward a bit, um, listen in to why it actually goes wrong. If you fast forward to chapter 15, a couple of pages over, Um, 15 and verse 13, we will get into chapter 14, I promise. Uh, 15 and verse 13, do you see why it goes wrong? It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, and the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. You see, they hadn't done it right the first time. They hadn't listened to the word of the Lord through Moses. 
when we're dealing with a perfectly pure and righteous and holy God, we can't just wing it and make it up as we go along. We can't just ignore his word, the Bible. What he says really matters. His words are for our benefit to bring us life. And when we do away with his words, actually there are consequences. If you remember last week, that was one of the key reasons we saw in the genealogy from chapter 1 through to chapter 8 or 9, there's a huge emphasis on Levi. Levi is there because his family and all the associated temple personnel represent the worship of the people, how to relate to God. And we're not just allowed to wing it when we worship. The chronicler wants to hit this home as he records this for his people now, that actually how they worship really matters, how they relate to God really matters. It's not a thing we can have our own kind of thoughts and ideas about this is something they will get wrong in the years to come and it will be a large reason for the fact that they are removed from the land now how we relate to God matters and I guess as you flip back to chapter 13 and as you see David making this first mistake that ends in the loss of life I guess we might be getting worried and a bit anxious thinking, they've done it again. God's kings again have stopped listening to him. First with Saul, David already. Another king who's doing things in his own strength, who's not inquiring of the Lord, who's forgotten the Bible and the words of Moses when it comes to how you move the ark. He's not listening to God's. He looks a bit like Saul on the outside. But what we'll see is that David actually experiences God's grace and blessing, despite this false start. And then we'll think a little bit about why that is. So, what does this blessing look like, chapter 14? Um, Have a look at the summary of them. You see in sort of shorthand... The chronicler giving us a glimpse of this blessing from God. So in verse 1, now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, along with cedar logs, stonemasons, and carpenters to build a palace for him. There's, there's this friendship with and blessing from Tyre, a neighboring nation, which is shorthand for God's blessing for the people of God. And so David's palace can be built. Actually, we'll see there's a similar setup for Solomon in years to come as he builds a temple palace next time. Similar materials from a similar place. But we're meant to see glimpses of God's providence and pleasure. Our minds are put at rest from the end of chapter 13, where we wonder if David is going the same way of Saul, because we see God's pleasure, recognition, respect. And in fact, David doesn't miss that himself. Verse 2, 14 verse 2. He knows that it's nothing that he has done which brings this blessing about, but it's a gift from the Lord. You see, David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom had been highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. 
lest we think David is some kind of um, celebrity leader, glory hunter in lights. No, he, he knows that what is happening is for God's people. This is God's doing. This is not David. God's sovereign plans and purposes to bless David. Why? Because he loves his people, because he has covenanted himself to his people. And so he's raised up David for his people. And any blessing that David receives, David knows, is from the Lord. It's for the sheep. Through the shepherd king, David. But actually, there's more favour in chapter 14. Do you see verse 3? He gets his big family. In Jerusalem, David took more wives and became the father of more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him there. And Ellie did them for us. And there's something cultural here, isn't there? It sounds alien to our Western ears. Not uncommon in certain cultures today for those in authority and power to have multiple wives. But actually, I do even wonder at this stage whether there's an early hint of where David's future downfall would come. Do you remember, she's not even in Chronicles, but David sees and takes Bathsheba. I wonder if even here we get a a, a nod from the chronicler of David's Achilles. But he's fruitful. There's an ambiguity there, but he's fruitful. God providing for Israel through David. God, as well, he protects Israel through David. We get that in the rest of the chapter, verse 8 through to um, verse 17. Two battles with the Philistines, verse 8 to 10. Both times he inquires of the Lord, notice. Maybe he's learnt his lesson. Inquires of the Lord, tick the box. The Lord answers and they defeat them. In verse 12, you get this conclusion, which I, I love. The Philistines had abandoned their gods there. And David gave orders to burn them in the fire. These so-called gods had abandoned the Philistines. And so the Philistines abandon their gods and leave them. There's a second battle then. Again, tick, David inquires. This time it's slightly different. There's a new tactic. Circle round from behind the Philistines. And when will you know when to attack? Well, verse 15. It's striking, isn't it? As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move out to battle. Because that will mean God has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. God with them in the battle. His presence. There's provision. There's protection. There's presence. And and contrast that with verse 12. The so-called gods of the Philistines are dead. And useless. Here is the living God at the heart of his people. Blessing his shepherd king for the sake of his covenant, for the sake of his people. God in the thick of it. And I think here is the contrast with Saul. David is not perfect. But the difference is he has sought the ark, but he did it for, in the wrong way. He did it for right reasons. He has been inquiring of the Lord through this battle. He has victory over the Philistines. If I can put it this way, David's heart is in the right place. And so at this point, we need to slow down and consider what this means for us. 
um, a number of the commentators on these these chapters draw a helpful comparison with what it means for us to be a believer, what it means for us to, if you like, stand in the steps of David. And they put it like this, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of heaven? There's something profoundly human, something profoundly Adam-like to try and do things in our own strength to not listen to the Lord, to not inquire of the Lord. And yet, do you remember the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6? Very relevant verses for our our age, our culture of uncertainty and anxiety and stress. Jesus urges us to seek first the kingdom of heaven and trust God to sort the rest. Let me read those verses for us. Matthew 6 and verse 25, if you're scribbling notes. Um, Therefore I tell you, says Jesus, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They, They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown to the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them, but... Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Familiar verses. But so hard, isn't it? Because we are an anxious people, and we do worry about our life, and we do worry about what's coming around the corner, and we do forget our Heavenly Father. And we think like everybody else thinks. And we get concerned in the way that everybody else gets concerned. And yet Jesus urges us to trust our Heavenly Father, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. And so it seems that even though David got the manner wrong of bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, the fact that he was seeking to do it Seeking first the Lord's kingdom and righteousness. Well, he got that right. Why did he want the ark in the first place? Because it represented the presence of God among his people. And David was seeking for that presence to be among the people. At the heart of the nation. Indeed, at the, the heart of Jerusalem, the new capital city. And so he gets some aspects wrong. But David is one, unlike Saul, who still seeks the Lord who still inquires of him again and again and again and again. His faults are there. His heart is in the right place, though, looking to live in the relationship with him that he was made for, rather than running after the same things as everybody else, living as a king of Israel ought to live, with the word of God at the heart of it. And it seems he learnt the lesson, at least for the time being, from that early mistake. 
So I take it as it, it is with us as well. There's something profoundly human, profoundly Adam-like to seek to do things in our own strength, to not listen, to not inquire of the Lord. In fact, often what we seem to do is we seem to make plans and then pray that God would bless those plans rather than inquiring of him in the first place. But our call is to look to him, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, to, to stop our shopping trolley hearts drifting off after other things the whole time, to point them to him, the fact that he is gracious, and he overlooks our misdeeds, and he overrules, and he sets us back on the right path again and again and again. And there's a challenge there, of course, because we need to ask the hard questions. Whether we do that, whether he is front and center, whether we are seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, if we are totally honest about it. Or whether we have drifted or we are drifting. Whether we have forgotten our Father in heaven, whether our anxieties and our stresses and the things that keep us awake at night ought to be the kind of anxieties and stresses and things that keep us awake at night that they should be. Whether we've forgotten him. So there's a challenge, there's an encouragement too, because like David, when we're going after the things of God first, so we do find one, we do have a Father in heaven who providentially provides what we need, who protects his people, indeed who has a presence among his people. Of course there's a sense in which as well these chapters must point us forward to Christ, to the one from David's family who perfectly sought God's kingdom and righteousness who said, yet not my will, but your will, Father, who perfectly obeyed the law. And so as it drives us to Jesus, to the one who even to the point of death followed and trusted, and as we follow and trust him, so his obedience and his righteousness is credited to us, and in him we are blessed, and through him God's kingdom grows. And so are we putting first his kingdom and his righteousness? Let me pray for us. Lord, we feel something of the, the challenge of these verses because we read of a David who, who forgot to inquire and at least for a time didn't listen. Maybe even who had good intentions, but didn't do things in the way that you had prescribed, in the way that you had commanded. And so there were consequences for that. And we feel that challenge because we have hearts that drift, because we are profoundly human and Adam-like and, and too easily seek to do things in our own strength and to not listen as we ought. But we thank you for the encouragement too. Thank you that, that you blessed David despite his blip at the beginning. 
We thank you too for the, the one from his line, the Lord Jesus, who would come and would perfectly obey, who would perfectly put first your kingdom and your righteousness. Thank you that we are found in him. Thank you that we come to you as our Father in heaven who loves to give good gifts to his children. Thank you that you, you have forgiven us our sins in him. And thank you that you bless us because we are in him. Change us, please, more into his likeness. Help us, please, to put to death the sinful nature each day, to put on Christ each day, and to seek to follow and to trust and to listen and to obey. In his name we pray. Amen.